You're listening to The New Paris. I'm your host, Lindsay Tremuda. Many of us can recall moments from childhood when there was nothing more appealing than being anywhere but at home. Someplace more dazzling. Someplace where everyday life takes on a more special sheen. Someplace like Paris. That moment is captured perfectly in Paris by Phone, the new rhyming picture book for kids by today's guest, Pamela Druckerman. She is the author of five books, including Bringing Up Baby, a worldwide bestseller, and writes a column about France for the New York Times. She joins me today to talk about the whimsical world and life lessons she wanted to express with this new book, the particular challenges of writing for children, and what makes Paris special for kids of all ages. Pamela, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lindsay. You are my first guest of 2021. Emma. So I'm very you are. I'm very excited about this. Um, I think it's good to start on a nice, light-hearted note, uh, given how crazy things continue to be already in, in this year. Um, where are you right now, actually? Just, am, to, just to situate people. I'm in Paris, comma, France. Um, <laughs> my, <laughs> there's, like a, there's a Paris, Florida I learned recently. Not just Texas. Okay. Yeah. I think it's a heavily um, pro-Trump part of the state, of my state. Yeah. Right. Because you are from the Miami area, right? I am from Miami itself, even. Miami itself. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you're in Paris. And um, how has this been for you? Obviously, you and I saw each other, uh, I would say it was last June, briefly. And by then we had come out of- Yeah. We went to a illegal birthday party. So there was that, but even before before that or after that, we did um, a pandem- one of your pandemonium talks. Does that count as we seeing each other? Or well, we saw each other also on the street because I gave you. I, I think we had to, you know, oh, that's run right. into each other our handoff. But you know, that's where our lives are very entwined in ways that I had. <laughs> <laughs> so, how do you feel right now? I mean, how has it been to work and write and parent during this time? I, I hate to admit it, but for me, it hasn't really changed that much. Um, I mean, I, I have a, a relatively high ambient level of anxiety, period. I'm always <laughs> expecting some terrible thing to happen. And then and then it did. And so I could relax, finally. You know, Because it was no longer an unknown threat. Yeah, it was always like, which one of these terrible things might happen? And, and now, well, now we kind of know. I mean, there are other terrible things coming down the pike, of course, but I mean, everyone else is worried about them too. So I don't have to keep the plane in the air. Other people can sort of grab me. This is true. Now, do you, do you have foresight that we don't have? You, you, you already know that there are other things coming down the the line that are equally as terrifying. No, no, I'm talking about this, you know, global warming and the things. I don't have access to the, yeah. Okay. All right. No, and I personally, you know, personal things I have access to, but not everyone's. Well, I thought maybe we were going to get a scoop. That you had oh, some on, sort of a on some I, I would some have thought like if I could go if I could go back in a time machine and warn people in the past that something terrible was going to happen in the future like something I know about like if I could go to Germany in 1933 and kind of um, would anyone listen to me like I'm, I was thinking like I'd be a terrible person to put into a time machine because I'd be completely ignored. <laughs> well, also, I mean, technically, there were experts who were warning us about, you know, the day the pandemic would come and no one listened. Yeah. 
So I guess the proof is that no one listens. So how, or that just no one is convincing enough except the bad guys. Right. Right. It's terrible. I think we should talk about Paris because okay. at, least, at least there's something positive in there. And we're so, back in the Paris uh, climate accord. So that's. That's right. Okay, good. There you go. Positive thing with Paris and our new government in America. Um, people certainly will know you from all of your previous work. You're a regular, you know, opinion editor, or opinion contributor, excuse me, to the New York Times. And you write for The Economist and um, you wrote Bringing Up Baby and a whole host of other nonfiction books. And and so your work has also been very personal. I mean, you're you're very heavily involved in each of the stories you tell. So this project, Paris by Phone, um, is very different. What um, what was the spark, and and in what ways do you think that it does actually still connect to your your previous work? Well, it is different in that it's fiction, um, but it's uh, based on a kind of story that. I guess I've been writing or trying to tell in different ways for a while, which is what's it like to not be happy at home, not be happy in the, in the world that you're born into, not feel that it's, that it suits you, that it's right. And to have this suspicion that there's another place out there where you, where everything will be better and brighter and prettier and, more sophisticated and more interesting and more exotic and more um, we're, we're kind of daily life will sparkle more where dinner won't be dinner. It'll be, you know, this fabulous meal. And so, and it, you know, living in, in Paris for a while, it's really struck me that part of the kind of like fantasy of the American in Paris is this idea that Paris is that place. Um, and it has been, for centuries for Americans. It's been that other place where everything is a little bit better, where you will become the best version of yourself. So um, so one of the, the sparks for this book was um, just the chance to explore that, the fantasy of the American in Paris a little bit more, but that the real kind of, um, well, I guess another spark for this book came out of a conversation that I actually had with my daughter. Um, um, who's now, I mean, she's now a teenager. So this conversation was probably when she was eight, eight or nine years old, definitely before she had her own phone. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we were having some kind of argument. I think it was over bedtime and she was so mad at me. And she said, "Um, mommy, I'm going to, I'm going to pick up this phone and I'm going to find another mother. Like whoever answers is going to be my mom. And um, and she actually said something which I didn't put in the book, which is that she said, and she's going to smoke. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that that's appropriate for a, a children's book, but <laughs> like, not only am I going to leave this house and go off with some other lady, but I'm going to get secondhand smoke, and that's going to be the worst thing for you. God, how hysterical! So it, okay. it struck me. Yeah, it struck me that like kids are really trapped in their families and the only way out for them is like this device that we carry around everywhere. So when I decided to write a children's book, those kind of things all fed, fed into it. And what's amusing is the, the telephone is not, however, a very digital looking device in the book. It's, it's sort of your, you know, traditional landline has a cord (laughs) attached, you know, um, 
was that a deliberate way to make it feel just sort of not too modern? I think so. I mean, that was very much Benjamin Shode's choice, the, the okay. illustrator. Um, but I think it was a great choice because it made it seem almost more magical that the fact that it was an old fashioned phone and not like an iPhone 11. <laughs> um, and so, okay. So in this case, you know, you, you, you have a direct conversation with your daughter that leads to this sort of creative idea because with children's books, you know, you really have to put yourself out there and think of, you know, not what an adult you would be imagining, but like really putting yourself in, in a kid's shoes. Um, how did you, so beside the girl picking up the phone, um, were there, how did the rest of the story come to be? You just sort of knew that you were going to sort of play out what those fantasy elements of Paris look like and why that would be so compelling to a young girl well, or a young child. Yeah, I, I wanted to establish, first of all, that she was frustrated with her mom, frustrated with home. You know, there's a scene at the beginning where her mom gives her a bowl of macaroni and cheese. And she's like, she's obsessed with France. And she's like, this is not cheese. You know, I want to go to the place where like people eat proper cheese for dinner. And her mother is, I guess, in the story, me. She's a journalist. She has a deadline. She is totally distracted, as we all are, partly by her phone, this magical device. And so she's just like, I can't talk to you right now. Go to your room. Um, and so the little girl is like, I want to go to Paris. This Again, this like the ultimate alternative place where everything is better. Oh, I, there was one more uh, actual inspiration for the book, which is this Russian movie I saw once many years ago where it's set during Soviet times. And um, it's, a, it's about a group of people living in a communal apartment. And someone finds this door, this like trap door that offers a portal to Paris. So like people keep, <laughs> so it's like an escape from your life. Wow. Okay. How convenient would that be? Well, here, I guess every to Paris for where, where we spend. Right, right, right. But, but no, wow. Okay, so those are, those are two very different images that you have in your head. What's interesting is you mentioned the, the, the bit about the, the daughter, you know, or the, the young girl not appreciating macaroni and cheese. It makes you wonder, at least this is my very, you know, adult reaction was, how did she already know about what real, real cheese was? You know, yeah, you don't know actually if she's already been there before. Maybe she has. I mean, obviously with a kid's book, you don't have to give those kinds of contextual details. Which <laughs> <laughs> is so different. Question. It's funny because when I first started thinking about how to structure the book, I thought maybe she'll be in school and they'll be learning a lesson about France at the beginning. So I think I remember doing a book report on um, Italy when I was a kid. And, you know, we, we were looking at an encyclopedia back then to find everything. Right. Um, so I guess that's how I imagine it started. But I think a I lot mean, of people... You can assume anyway. Yeah, definitely. But a lot of, um, you know, I, tar I meet so many Americans who are obsessed with France, some of whom live here, some of whom like visit every year. And for some of them, it was like, I met a French lady when I was eight years old and her, <laughs> you know, she wore Chanel number five or like there was a trip to France or there was somebody brought back like some exquisite pastry that tasted like France. And they always wanted to go to the place where they first, yeah. 
You know, that's a good point. Um, I, I, I sometimes forget that, that so many people have those, you know, memories from childhood, because mine was purely sort of an academic introduction to France, and not something like, you know, I met a French lady or, you know, anything like that. So unfortunately, I had to, I had to wait longer than maybe some other people to, to find that sort of hook, uh, or to get hooked. But, but it's, it's true. Is it uh, this was, well, so this was in middle school and then in high school being, you know, a French literature nerd, um, you know, and so I was exposed to it, though, in school, it didn't come, you know, I didn't watch a whole lot of movies that involved France. Um, there was no one in my, you know, where I grew up that was particularly, I mean, we, I would go to Hebrew school, I'm not going to meet a, a French person in Hebrew school, probably, you know, not in the suburbs of Philadelphia. So <laughs> Just my, my opportunities to meet French characters would be very, very uh, slim. Yeah. Um, but and you're I right, there are people. But also totally. on TV, through movie, yeah. I think Frenchness kind of um, comes in. And now you have, and this wasn't the case when, even when you were going to school, because you're going to meet, uh, that there's so many kids learning French in America now. They're the... There are bilingual schools all over the country. I met some kids from Montana who go to a bilingual French school. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So that's, you're right. That's definitely more, more recent because, you know, there was, there was sort of a, a, a general feeling of like, why are you learning French in the first place? Uh, you know, back when, I, back when I was in school, I was like, what are you doing with this? Are you going to become a teacher? No. Why are you doing this? Then? So you just were always drawn to French. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the language, but not, you know, I wasn't, you know, the one dreaming of France as a physical destination. I was sort of, my head was in the books kind of thing. And, and so much but different. Were the books set in France? Didn't that? Well, you know, I, I mean, I think I probably read, what was the, what was the book called with the, was it Amelia? No, the girl, the little girl in the okay. school. No, not Amelie. Oh God. What is it called? Oh no. Madeline, right? Isn't it oh, Madeline? Madeline. Madeline? Yeah. Madeline, I have one of her books here. Yeah, so much different, not Amélie or Aurélie or whatever I said. Oh, right. um, but, you know, I remember those kinds of stories. But, mm. you know, I don't I don't remember what I was reading as a kid. I think, like, very young. I mean, what age group is yeah, this book? I didn't book? know Babar was French, for example. Was it? <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. Oh, well, then I definitely read that. Okay. No, but nobody told us that. And the Red Balloon. Did you ever see that movie? That was a French movie. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, and and then later we read, you know, The Little Prince and things like that. But that was much later. Yeah. I don't um, even know if I knew that was French. I just knew it was really confusing. <laughs> well, it was very metaphorical and existential and whatnot. So I think I was way too young when I read it. But so, who is what age group is this book targeted for? Um, I think it's from any time when you can read to a kid. So from pretty young, like two years old, probably to around eight, like eight or nine. It's the kind of book that, um, kids could start reading themselves. Eventually they could sort of go from being, having it be read to them to reading it themselves. And it's, um, it's in a gentle way. It's a learning French book. So I, um, use some French phrases and there's a lexicon at the end. Yes, you did. I thought that was super fun and a, and a very natural way to to insert that because otherwise it becomes, you know, kids are like, wait, I have to learn something. Forget it. But it was, it was <laughs> well, I, totally had, seamless. I had a lot of French, I had more French words at the beginning. But one thing I did when I was working on the manuscript and, you know, refining it over and over again, because you had to, I had to get it down to 30, 32, 34 pages 
was um, I read it to lots of ki- little kids, mostly to my nieces and nephews. And oh. often their critique was like, I don't understand those words. <laughs> lost me at, you know. <laughs> so. Well, good. You, you use the right sample. I mean, you do need to know how these little little kids will react. So yeah, and the biggest um, debate I had with my editors, I wanted to have um, je ne sais quoi in it. Like Josephine felt a certain je ne sais quoi. And mm-hmm. it rhymed really well with awe or some, some other word. And she was like, you can't, that, that's <laughs> to you as a, as a, you know, as an adult, but kids are not going to know what that means. So, oh, that's so I had funny. to strike a balance between sort of winking to adults and no, it makes sense. And, but you did. I do think, I think you found a way to make it um, relatable to adults as well. I mean, I found myself giggling at some of the things she, she experienced, but you know, what's interesting I wanted to ask you is I've always heard that writing a children's book for someone who's written, you know, adult books is quite daunting because there are so few words in the whole thing in the end. How did you find that experience of storytelling? As you said, you had to, you know, constantly refine and, and test, but was it, were you like, did you feel a lot of pressure knowing like, oh, I only have like, what is it? Like 700 words, 800 words? Less, fewer words. It's like a poem. I mean, it, it, it is, a, it, it is rhyming. Um, I knew that there were certain beats I wanted to hit and scenes I wanted to get to. So that created, helped create its own. Like I knew I wanted Josephine to eat an oyster because that would be like consuming <laughs> Frenchness in a way and having this kind of disgusting slash delicious experience that was going to transform her in some way into a French person. Um, but then it was also going to make her sad because she was having this amazing uh, experience without her mother. And right. from there, there was going to be like an emotional pivot where she started to think, maybe, maybe this is great, but maybe I want to go, maybe I want to go home. So I imagine with, you know, with a children's book, you have to get to that pivot point kind of quickly. Um, and it can't be too involved, right? So it was as simple as knowing that the oyster was going to be that moment for her where yeah. everything shifted. Yeah. And the other thing, I guess that one of the most interesting parts was, putting the text because the text was ready before the drawings were made. And so matching them together and seeing that like, once you could see something in a picture, you didn't have to explain it. So Mm. mostly it was a process of just taking words out. And there are a few pages where, I mean, his, his illustrations are just stunning. Like they're, they're cheeky and they're playful, but they're also very beautiful. Like he uses like this incredible palette and these repeating patterns and so um, in a few, on a few pages, my editor said, we're just going to take off the text because the image is so strong. You don't need to say anything. And I was like, but I liked my work. That's such a good rhyme. Well, and that's, you know, that's, that's your work versus his at that point. I mean, that's a, that's a much different dynamic. Not, I mean, she was right and, and at every point, I hope. And I went with her because she, I just wasn't used to working with images in that way. So I guess, I mean, you, you've just mentioned the process of working with the illustrator, which is that you wrote the story first and then he brought it to life. Um, Did you feel like you would have done, would the story have changed if you had seen a sample of his images beforehand? Would you have taken her in different places? You think if he had just sort of 
gone wild and imagined different scenes based off of a, I don't know, a simple brief? Um, it's possible, but I think for him, it was useful to, to know, you know, what the text, what, what the, the structure of the story was and where we were going, but he definitely did some things that surprised me. And he created some double page spreads on, on pages that I hadn't thought were, were going to be, have that level of importance in the book. And so that from, I, I adjusted definitely the words. Hmm. Them. So of course, uh, you know, you've, you've raised your kids um, entirely here, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Paris. How do you think it fares uh, as a city, as a destination for kids compared to, you know, other places you've lived or even just other capitals that you visited with them? Do you think it's a, it's a good place to raise kids? Um, well, I haven't, I haven't raised kids anyplace else. Um, but I can definitely say, and now of course it's a very particular moment in world history (laughs) to be doing anything, let alone, let alone raising kids. Um, I think definitely structurally compared to America, which is the other place I know well, there are so many more services for parents. And I mean, just starting with guaranteed maternity leave and a small amount of paternity leave, um, and, uh, you know, a national system of daycare right? and then universals, which is paid and you have to apply to get into it, but you also have subsidized nannies and things like that. And, um, and then universal public preschool from age three. I mean, that's just, if you consider the fact that in America, as a parent, you're basically on your own until your kid is four or five, usually five. Now it's becoming four in some places, unless you're really poor. Uh, it's, it's night and day. I mean, in America, we, there's a lot of lip service paid to women's rights and mothers and parents and the importance of family and all that. But if you look at, you know, facts on the ground and what kind of support do you actually get for your tax dollars as a parent, like it's, it's very thin, you know, right. You know, I'm not going to, you know, rehearse all the familiar arguments. You are like famously, yeah, the only rich country that doesn't have national paid maternity leave and um, all kinds of other services. We don't have to talk about healthcare or the cost of college and college debt and all that. I mean, what Americans don't realize, and this is like starting from childhood, but also going up to university, is like Europeans do not save for college from the time no. children are born and then still don't have enough money and then go into debt and their kids are, and they can't retire themselves. So they have, you know, if college here is either free or it costs a few thousand dollars a year. I mean, it's not, it's just night and day. Right. So, so your, right, your kid went off a little bit of a rant there, but it's just, Oh no, no. But that all these factors per, are such a source of the college payments and healthcare costs are such a source of anxiety and stress in America for a very good reason. And that just doesn't exist here. There are sources of stress in Europe, of course, but it's not from those two big feeders. No, no, absolutely not. Um, and then, you know, because you've traveled with your kids, I'm assuming as well, whether it's within France or within, you know, across Europe, you brought them to the States, I'm assuming regularly. Um, do you think Paris is a good sort of travel destination for kids and families? Um, because, you know, some people like to talk about how, yes, there are great manicured, gorgeous parks, but, you know, they're not particularly, you know, uh, it's not the place where you're going to get rough and dirty and play in the mud and, you know, um, mud on the Champs de Mars. 
Uh, <laughs> I've been in mud there. Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's fancy. It's elegant, right? But it's so impressive to to little kids. I mean, and there are so many playgrounds. I mean, think about the Luxembourg Gardens. Um, and the- it's true. I see it. I see. I don't see the city through you know kids' eyes really. I mean, I have more and more friends who have children, and so I'm starting to to see what they have to even their parents have to consider and think about. And where do you bring your kids? And you know, so many uh, live near the Butchamont, which is great because it's just massive um, and you know s- slightly less manicured than the Luxembourg Garden, so you don't feel like you're you know walking in a postcard. But yeah, and the Villette up there, the Parc de la Villette is exactly wonderful. I mean, it's it's really it's enormous and and varied. And there's a sci- there's a great science museum there, and it's true. There are incredible like music exhibitions there. There's circuses there, like multiple circuses going on at once. Um, yeah, I mean, there's one of well, one place that I put in the book because I just it was what my favorite place to take my kids when they were little is the are the in ground trampolines in the Tuileries Gardens. You've probably walked past those. I have walked by them, yeah. Um that's the highlight. It's it's funny because I didn't even sort of I, I never think about them. And then I thought about them only when you when I, you know, saw it in the book. And you know, so just where your mind has to go in terms of thinking about what you bring to life in in terms of a you know, a book to appeal to kids, but, you know, just what is supposed to represent Paris in this case? I mean, there's so much choice here in terms of what you can pull from. So was that difficult sort of narrowing down, you know, that journey? Yeah. Well, I wanted to um, bring some elements of bringing up Bebe into this book, but not mm-hmm. in any, not in any kind of like super literal way, but I, I did include a few like there's this rule that French parents have, which is you don't have to eat everything, but you do have to taste it. And it's a way of sort of getting to know different foods. So that's in, that's in the book. She says that about the oyster, in fact. Um, but I, I also think like f- for kids visiting Paris um, and for parents, uh, for anyone visiting Paris, like food experiences are really important and special and just, they don't have to be at fancy restaurants, but like no. I remember um, I, some friends of mine came to Paris and I just took them to a cafe and they ordered like hot chocolate, which is, you know, more delicious than any sort of like packaged hot chocolate you've ever had in America or like, um, the eggs. I don't even know how you call it in English. Like the Lisefale à la coque. Where oh yeah. The, uh, soft boiled eggs, the soft boiled eggs that come in the little container, with the, soldier, the, the bread soldiers. Is that what they're called? With the soldiers. Yeah. The British call them soldiers. What do we call them? Probably the bread sticks. Sticks. <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't even, I don't know. I, I didn't grow up eating that either. So yeah, just, but that's a really special experience that you can have. And, um, just eating ice cream in a park, um, in one of like the beautiful gardens. And I think combined experiences in Paris are really fun. Like, mm-hmm. um, my t- so yeah, there's a lot, a lot to offer, but food is, I think you, you bring up an interesting point as, as in, in, in far as what you can learn also about a place as a kid, through those kinds of moments. Yeah. Or going um, to like a, a cheese store with a kid oh yeah. and letting them pick out four or five different cheeses. You buy a little piece of each and then you go home and you taste all the cheeses. And some of them are probably like, do they like any of them? I mean, how does that, is that like a total flop in the beginning? <laughs> <laughs> well, you can get some that are, you can get a neutral, a neutral. like an emmental. An emmental, yeah. And then maybe a <laughs> Little, little more flavor. Right. 
So you you bring up bringing up Bebe, which is it's sort of hard to talk about your your work without bringing up that book because it's really become essential reading if you're if you're you know trying to understand some of the differences between you know Parisian but also French culture and 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 their approach to children and raising family. Um, but since you wrote it, I mean, it's been many years now uh, and your kids have gotten older and, you know, the city has changed in that time. Have you observed any specific evolutions in, in the way people are raising kids now since when your book was released? Um, sure. Things have definitely, um, I think most of the fundamentals of the book are still the same. I think French parents would still say to their kids, you have, you, you, you have to taste it. Um, right. <laughs> Um, I think that that, that there's still a a kind of, um, a strictness here among parents, this, uh, an idea that parents are the authority figure and Mm -hmm. they're not ambivalent about saying, no, they don't have these, you know, when I was writing my book, like there was this philosophy going around in America that you should, and this was, this is a fringe philosophy, but the idea was like, you should never let your child hear the word. No. (laughs) My God. Yeah. Um, and, and which obviously we know is not that would never fly here. Right, that would never fly here. Like there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of no in in parenting. <laughs> um, but I think there's more. Uh, there's much more, not much more, but there's a sign. There seems to be more breastfeeding, um, which mm. is, it's still not very popular here, but um, it's grown. Um, screens were not really a factor when I. Um, was writing the book. And in fact, I don't know if you remember Baby Mozart was a yeah. thing for a while. Yeah. And yeah. I remember fr- I would tell my French neighbor about Baby I was like, there are these tapes and you play them for your infant. And they're like this trippy kind of like mood music. And and, and they thought I was nuts. Uh, and now like you see more and more kids in strollers on screens. And mm. um, yeah. Yeah, that I don't think uh, has escaped the French in any in any way. I mean, it's, everyone is equally as susceptible to that. I'm sure. Yeah. You know, the urge to get them off your back or distract them or, or, or whatever, whatever. Um, but they, they are, I think one thing about the strictness is that I think French parents are more comfortable. I'm not saying they're like great at it, but they, they're more comfortable setting limits with screens and saying like, you, you have to get through this meal without, without looking at your phone. And do your kids, uh, now that they're older, do they, um, uh, has, has sort of your approach to parenting, obviously it's had to change as well as they've gotten older, but do you think that sort of seeing them in today's Paris feels like you're almost raising them in a totally different city? I mean, I, I can only imagine what it must feel like, especially given the times we're living in and, you know, having them go through this certainly I mean, I would imagine there are things sort of traditional about the way the French approach parenting that apply even as they get older, not just when they're super young. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I've been in less of a sort of investigative mode and more in just a trying to get, trying to get by mode. But yeah, I think one, um, one thing that I talked a little bit about in the book, but which has definitely been a big um, factor as my kids have gotten older is that um, you really just try to talk about everything and um in an in an unshocked way and that includes like drinking alcohol and sex and drugs and 
bad people and good people, like just try to sort of in a non-judgmental way, keep the conversation open mm-hmm. um, so you know what's going on instead of sort of pretending that that stuff doesn't happen and, and um, immediately chastising them for even being curious about exactly the same things we were curious about. So. Right, right. I try to imagine though what it must be like as a teenager or a 20 year old right now, given the, con- you know, the constraints that we have and being confined or partially confined. And, you know, would, would I, you know, even the best of us, you know, the ones who know right from wrong, would we have reached a point where we would just, Go you know, freak out and do all the wrong things? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. Do your kids feel like they're, you know, reaching breaking point? Um, no, because they go to school. So right. they see their friends at school every day. So I think because they're still is, in high school, right? They're in ju- junior high. Or junior, yeah. Okay. Or middle school. Yeah, because I have a niece who's now uh, almost 19 and she started university. And it's been a disaster. I mean, it's been traumatic because it was quickly shut. And then, you know, you're, you're starting your whole university experience doing it remotely and, you know, things are all over your head or you're not understanding things. And that's just, you know, it yeah, feels like especially you know, fish out of water. Yeah. No, the, the, the headline in Le Monde today, I think, is that there, um, pediatricians are worried about depression among kind of um, young adults. That's, I, I don't think we've seen even the start of, of the long-term consequences of all of this. But good thing that your kids are not, you know, college age then you've got still yeah, a little I bit of think this pandemic was very much the luck of the draw that like people with little kids who had to homeschool them for months at home in the UK you know relatives who are going through that and they're working full-time jobs they have you know a four-year-old and a six-year-old at home who need help learning at every moment I mean it cannot be it's just it's impossible so the fact that my kids were reasonably self-sufficient when this when the sort of uh, curtain fell on life as we knew it has made an enormous difference. And that they weren't in university age, like you're. Right, right, right. I mean, it's, you really, you, you have the sweet spot then. <laughs> yeah, I'm really grateful. Um, so you leave the book just as a, as a, to wrap up, you, you, you leave the, or you conclude the book with what to me feels like an, an opportunity, a, a door being open. Uh, will you maybe continue this in into a series? Uh, there's talk of this turning into a series. Um, I, I would love to continue. I love writing rhyme. Um, I, I, I think in like an alternate universe, I would have been like wrote musicals or um, did. I, I find it just very joyful and a life affirming, especially now. So and it, it's, it's been really funny that this book about a girl who can't travel and finds a way to do it has come out like in the middle of the pandemic because it was in the works. You, you have some connection to the universe who's feeding you these little, you know, <laughs> predictions, but excellent timing. Honestly, it's, it's a, it's a joyful, wonderful book that I think, you know, we, it's, it's good. It's both good timing, but also great for the sort of travel uh, kids travel literature. Um, and, you know, we, we talk about uh, one of the, you know, those old, that old collection of books, um, illustrated books for kids, you know, one's in New York, one's in London, Paris. I'm, um, I could see this following in, in those footsteps. So it looks like you've got yourself a, a whole new avenue to pursue. Pamela, your new book is called Paris by Phone. Um, and I do hope we get to see you doing maybe readings 
with kids? Is that on the horizon? It is. I'm going to do an event, um, I think, soon with the American Library in Paris and a a couple other places. So uh. Awesome. And we didn't talk about your pandemonium talks, but I will include that. Um, Those you're continuing as well. We are. And you know them well because you've been a guest on it. for. I have. And that was... You get such a tremendous audience to these talks. I mean, super engaged, super uh, curious, just fantastic series you've got. Thank you. Thank you very much. So we had jo- we had a Josephine Baker session. Um, I did. I saw that in my email. Yeah. Yeah, it was fantastic. It's been great for me um, during the pandemic because I've gotten to meet all kinds of new people, even if only over Zoom. And I've gotten to read their book, many of their books, including your wonderful book. Um, and sort of, uh, I don't know, it's been, it's been a way to sort of escape even without, um, being able to leave the confines of my home. Well, now people have multiple sort of genres to, to discover you if they haven't already. So Paris by phone is your new children's book. Uh, you've got the pandemonium, uh, conversation, virtual conversations, bringing up baby. Your last book was called. There are no grownups. There are no grownups, which was hysterical. Pamela, thank you so much for coming on the show, and I hope you'll keep entertaining us with your with your stories. Oh, thank you so much for having me on, Lindsay. That's the show for today. As always, thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing with friends. You can find all previous episodes of the New Paris podcast wherever you stream your podcasts and on World Radio Paris. If you're enjoying these conversations, please consider picking up a copy of the New Paris book or my recent release, The New Parisienne, from your local booksellers. Until next time, à bientôt.